Amen. Children are dismissed back to Praise Factory. If you've got your Bible, open that to uh, Genesis chapter 22. And, uh, and we're going to be reading uh, the first uh, 19 verses of Genesis chapter 22. And, uh, and then we're going to pray and, and turn to the, expl- to the explanation of God's Word. I'm thankful uh, for my brother Jerry and the job that he did coming up here and, and, and doing that presentation. Uh, we want to continue to, to show you over the next couple weeks um, how God is, is working in the hearts of our people. And, uh, and I, I think you, can, you could not just see it in, uh, in the pictures, but I think you could hear it in Jerry's voice that, uh, that being over in, uh, in, in Zambia and the experience uh, has had a lasting effect and, uh, and has challenged. Uh, his thinking and his faith, and so it's, it's good. We're just going to continue to bring you some presentations over the next couple weeks. Um, Genesis 22 says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies." And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. 
And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to come and to hear this story. Let us take joy in the fact that we know Abraham's story, this particular story, from beginning to end. We know that the call to sacrifice your one and only son whom you love, Isaac, that Abraham is delivered from that call. And so we, we, we may tend to fast forward through the horror and the impact and the, the fear of, of thinking through what must have, have gone through Abraham's head. And we can think, Lord, that the answer is that you provided, that you could be trusted. And that is what we should learn from this passage. But we, we don't want to just view this as an account of one time that you delivered someone from something. We, we want to see this in the place that it is in Scripture in the beginning. We want to see this as an act of faith by Jesus' ancestor. Uh, an act of faith that should inform the lives of, of all believers. And we want to be challenged by it. We want to put ourselves in Abraham's shoes. We want, to, we want to lift up whatever principle of life that there is from Abraham's story and translate it into the story that we don't know the ending of yet, our story. And we want it to affect the way that we live. And so we pray that you would challenge us from your word this morning. When you call our name, may we say, here I am. And may we obey, responding to what you say to us in faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, child naming strategy is important. Um, you, if, you, if, you, if you're not consistent, you know, you can't go back and, and rename your oldest child with, a, with a, a letter so that all the names will be consistent, right? You've got to get it right on the first kid. If you plan to have five kids and name them all J names, you've got you've to be thinking through that. You also, I think there are several other things that are useful in child naming. Um, I was born into a family that did not believe in nicknames, and so my brother and I are both named non-nicknameable names. Uh, this does not really solve anything, parents, because um, other children will find words that rhyme with your name or they will use your last name, you know, and they'll use that to make fun of you if that's, um, if that's the concern in the non-nicknameable name. Um, we, my, my wife and I like nicknameable names, and, and, and so it's good, you know, so we, we've gone with very short, short nicknames, Sam, Jack, Max. Hank. Those are, those are good, solid daily communication. But one of the use of a, of a longer name is that a longer name can be shouted in a time of emergency, right? And, and, and the longer name, the extended name with the middle name will generally indicate the, the seriousness or severity of the event. As, as one of our children said to someone once, when my mom calls Maxwell Keith Meyer, I know she's serious. Uh, but you can, you can yell Henry Meyer, and it, and it, it is arresting. Uh, 
it, it, it's, it's useful. So, so, you know, if you're planning on one day having kids or you've, you've got the opportunity to name things, um, you know, in, in the future, children name things. <laughs> children can be things in a, in a general sense, can't they? Everything. Anyway, I'm not going to get into that. I, I defend the legitimacy of calling children things. Um, uh, naming's important. God thinks names are important. God calls human beings by name. He creates Adam and calls him Adam, places him in a garden and gives him a command. This tree is off limits. All other trees, including the tree of life from which if you take and eat, you will live forever. These trees are for you. Do not eat from this tree. And Adam succumbs to the temptation incited by the devil to eat from the tree. And when he does, he hides himself. And all human beings have been hiding themselves ever since. We hide ourselves because we fear God and we fear the consequences of what we have all done. God comes to find Adam and he calls him and he says, Adam, and Adam's response is to be silent. God calls to him, Adam, where are you? And Adam says, I hid myself. All human beings, when we encounter temptation and struggle and we fall into sin, we realize that we have a need to hide ourselves from a righteous God. A God who is holy and pure and who cannot stand sin. We understand instinctively that we will come under judgment and so we hide. There's a tendency for people to look at suffering and difficulty and temptation as an opportunity or an occasion to hide from God. But we ought not to think of it that way. Look at the book of Genesis and what it says here. It says, after these things, this is 22 verse 1, God tested Abraham. God is good and righteous and holy. And that means that God's testing of us is good and righteous and holy as well. When God tests a person, his intention, he's not like a, uh, you know, school's coming. He's not like a, a cruel and wicked school teacher. This is not to say teachers are wicked and cruel. There are wicked and cruel teachers who, when they test students, they want their students to fail. No. God desires that when he tests his children that they bear up under that temptation and that they succeed. What does 1 Corinthians 10:13 teach us? No temptation has overtaken you except which is common to man. The test which I'm enduring right this moment is not something that no one has ever struggled with. It's something that, that all human beings have struggled with or, or many humans have struggled with at some time or another. Right? No temptation has overtaken you except which is common to man. God is faithful. God doesn't abandon you in a time of testing. He's with you. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. Like, like a, if, the, if the test or temptation which appeals to your flesh and, and the devil is inciting you to sin and the world is saying, go ahead and do it. And the minute you do it, they're going to say, the nerve of you. You call yourself a Christian. Or if you can, if you can view that test as a, as a barking, angry, vicious dog, God is holding that back. 
holding it back to the place where it cannot reach you. He's, he's restraining the temptation so that you're able to endure it. And with each and every temptation, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that he gives the way of escape so that you'll be able to endure it. Every test, we ought to believe that God is saying, you can do this if you rely on resources from me, if you admit your weakness and your need and you call out to me, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you'll be able to overcome it. And so what does God tell the believers through Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 14? He says, flee from idolatry. So God tests Abraham. He is good and right to do this. Abraham. And Abraham's response is, here I am. Here I am. God comes to Jacob in a dream and calls him Jacob. Hey, Jacob says, here I am. These men do not hide themselves. Moses sees the burning bush. He turns aside to see what's up over there. And God calls to him, Moses. And Moses says, here I am. God calls to Samuel in the tabernacle. Here I am. I trained Sam when he was just a little toddler, I would say. If I say Samuel, you say, here I am. And so it's like a little, little Bible play acting there all the time. Samuel, here I am. He's grown out of it. Now he says, what? Or yes? Or but it'd be funny. We should dress him up like biblical Samuel. I'll call him. We're not going to do that. Um, Isaiah in the temple, when, when Isaiah is confronted with the Lord, he sees the train of the Lord's robe filling the temple and he sees the Lord high and lifted up and he is afraid. He hears the beasts crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He realizes his own wickedness and he cries out, woe is me, I am undone or destroyed, depending on how you translate it. I'm a man of, of, of wicked words and a generation of wicked words and an angel flies to him, purifies his lips with a coal, says, you are clean. And then God cries out, who will deliver our message? What does Isaiah say? Here am I or here I am. Ananias praying after Saul's conversion. God says, go and share with Saul. And Ananias is like, say what? And he's like, go and tell Saul, the persecutor of the church, that I have plans for him. In the Bible, saying, here I am, indicates readiness and availability. And so... We need to ask ourselves the question, if we can hear through the noise, to hear the voice of God calling to us. I'm not saying that he's going to say to you, Keith, Keith. First of all, that'd be weird, because that's my name. But second of all, he's not going to, I believe, audibly speak to you. He's going to speak to you through his word. The question is, can you hear him speaking? The experience of Elijah teaches us that so often we expect to hear God not in a whisper, but in a loud noise, whether it's um, the great wind tearing up the mountains in 1 Kings chapter 19, or an earthquake, or a fire, but it says over and over again that the Lord was not in these things. The Lord was not in the earthquake, or the wind, or in the fire. After the fire, Elijah hears a sound of a low whisper. When he hears that whisper, he, he listens. He goes and he stands and he, he listens. And a voice comes to him and says to him, What 
are you doing? Elijah had left his post, gone into hiding, and had, had taken up a complaint against the Lord. This is what happens so often when we open ourselves up to take steps of faith what happens is we hear the voice of the Lord speaking. If we can hear him through the noise in our culture, through the noise in our souls, through the noise in our minds, we hear him, we hear God reply to us, and he rebukes us, calling us into obedience. The Bible says that we're to trust in the Lord with all of our hearts. We're to lean not on our own understanding, but in all of our ways to acknowledge him. And he will make our paths straight. You know what that means? That means we may show up at church having heard Bible stuff for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, having, having read through the whole Bible several times, having learned all kinds of things. And the Lord may say, I want you to deal with this. It's very easy for Christians very easy to grow accustomed to the idea that if we just come into church and go home and read our Bible or, or read a devotional by email or, or check things out on our phone every day or repost pictures of Jesus on Facebook, and there's other reasons why we probably shouldn't do that, but, but if we think that's enough. But as Christians, we're called to embrace the testing of God. Testing which, which results in greater dependence and greater allegiance and greater trust because it's by testing, by suffering, a means by which God conforms us to the image of Christ. And we as Christians are to be conformed to the image of Christ, not Christ conformed to our image of ourselves. Right? Not, not us saying, no, this is what God should do for me. This is how God ought to deliver me. This is what the future ought to look like. We are not the masters of our faith, the pilots of our soul. God is. God calls us to be conformed to Christ's image through his word. And God asks his followers to do hard things and to trust him. There are three I am's, or here I am's, rather, in this story. Abraham is being called to sacrifice. God calls to Abraham and says, Abraham, he says, here I am. And God says, do this scary thing. And I think Abraham begins to obey, thinking, I do not know what is going to happen here. I do not know how this is going to work. I do not know how this is going to end, but I trust God, and so I'm going to obey. There's the second, here I am, where Isaac says, my father, and Abraham says, here I am. Isn't that amazing? There's no lamb, dad. God will provide a lamb for himself. This boy trusts his father. Abraham demonstrates that he is ready and, and, and willing to, to help and to serve his son here, but he has no good answer the question that's asked, other than by faith, I believe it will work out. The real important things in life, folks, we're not just going to be able to flip and, and look and, and assemble a couple of Bible commands or injunctions and say, this is exactly how the story is going to work out. How is, this, how is this illness that I struggle with going to end? 
What am I supposed to do with the fact that I just lost my job? How do I handle the fact that I've been hit with a medical bill or a repair bill that I do not have the funds to pay? What, what do you mean I just lost half of my 401k in an economic downturn? What am I supposed to do with this? Not really sure. But Abraham knows that the Lord will provide. He doesn't know how, but he knows that he will. And so he walks by faith. The story of the sacrifice of Isaac teaches us a couple of things. It's interesting. I ask my students, and you guys know this if you know the story of, of Abraham and Isaac and, and Abraham offering up Isaac. I ask my students, I say, uh, in, in the class that I teach over in Africa, I say, what does the, uh, in, in terms of the class that we're studying, in terms of the, the redemptive program of God in the world, what does the sacrifice of Isaac symbolize? What does it teach us? And the students invariably write things like, it teaches us to trust and depend on God. And I say no, and I mark it wrong, because that's not what I taught them in class. This is what I teach them. I teach them that, that the walk of faith sometimes involves insane things. God promises Abraham, I will make you a great nation. I will deal with the problem of sin through you by sending Messiah who will bless all nations. And that promise is going to come to the world through your son. So here's the right answer to the question. If Abraham sacrifices Isaac, how does God accomplish his plan? It's crazy to sacrifice Isaac. But by faith, Abraham believes that somehow God will work it out. Somehow he's going to work this thing out. Isaac also should signify to us the work of Christ. We are saved by Jesus' one giant continuous act of faith. Isaac trusts his father and goes with him, right? Without knowing the full plan. Jesus knows the whole plan and comes into the world to do the will of God. It's amazing. The Bible speaks about what Jesus thinks when he comes into the world. Hebrews 10:5 it says, "Consequently, when Christ comes into the world, he says, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired." God's not interested in us saying, "I sinned, I'm sorry, here's an offering." That's not what he wants. What he wants is complete and total, utter righteousness and sinlessness from us. And none of us have been able to do it since Adam fell. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Jesus from the moment he was born, from the moment he was conceived, was thinking, I will obey the will of God, and he obeyed perfectly throughout his entire life. Do you know what that means? And it means no matter how much you or I have failed in our life, there is someone who can step into our place and say, I have never failed, not once. And he can stand in our place and take our punishment for us. That's called the active obedience of Christ. And he, by faith, obeyed God his entire life. He obeyed his father perfectly. Because he is the son of God, because he's the infinite son of God, he can go to the cross and his value is so great that his righteousness can cover the sins of all of humanity. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.20 that in him 
we become the righteousness of God. A second factor of Jesus' obedience that we can see laid out in advance in this story. This is a predictor of what Jesus would do on the cross. Isaac is bound by Abraham. He must have been obedient. I mean, think about it. Abraham at this point is like, what, 100, 110? I, at 41, have a hard time chasing my four-year-old. You know, we're talking a 110-year-old guy catching this kid if he wants to run away. No, I believe Isaac was obedient. Jesus also was obedient, and he received the judgment of God upon himself. Matthew 26, Jesus prayed, My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. If this cannot pass, he says in verse 42, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And so he received in himself the punishment and penalty for our sins. He who knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, became sin for us. Taking our sinfulness and wickedness upon himself, he received the wrath of God. And that means that when judgment comes around for us, there's nothing left to hand out if we're in Christ, if we put our faith and trust in him as our substitute. We see this prefigured in Isaac being placed on the altar. Abraham places him on the altar and says, no alternative has come through. Nothing is stopping this plan. He takes the knife. He raises the knife and he thinks, thy will be done. And God calls his name Abraham, Abraham. And he says, here I am. I cannot imagine how emotional and difficult a moment this must have been. The grief and the, and the pain and the fear and the struggle. Talk about what Isaac must have been thinking about in just a second. But God speaks to him, Abraham, Abraham, here I am. Do not harm the boy. You may object to this. I think viscerally we object and we say, what's going on there? Why would God demand this? Clearly, anybody who does anything like this today would lose their children it would be considered cruel mental abuse to a child to do something like this to them. To which I would say this, if you transport yourself from today's culture back into theirs, every single idol was calling for people to sacrifice their children like this as the ultimate form of worship. In countries like Uganda today, uh, this is the world we live in, folks. I don't want to horrify you, but you are guaranteed, some say, a fantastic crop if you will sacrifice a child and bury it in a field. This happens. It happens. Gods have been calling, false gods have been calling for this since the dawn of humanity. But God teaches us this, that when he asks the ultimate from Abraham, sacrifice your child and Abraham engages and says, I will do this. God says, no. And he stops him. And no human being is ever asked to do this ever again in the Bible. In fact, whenever it shows up, it's condemned as a reprehensible, horrible sin. No human will ever be asked to sacrifice their child. And no human should ever sacrifice their child for any reason, in any form, in any culture, because God is faithful and will be faithful through any crisis. 
I think there's an application in our culture today that we ought to say there are no good circumstances and that anybody who says well there are these exceptions and they're good we ought to display or we ought to respond to that as the fiction that it is and say these circumstances seldom happen so seldom that we could say they never happen and that our culture sacrifices its children for their own convenience and we're not kind if we say I can't enforce my will on others because as human beings we enforce our will on others all the time just go out and drive 65 down that road and you'll see the will of the people established through the state enforced on you run a red light you'll get a ticket in the mail I guarantee it I can't judge others and tell them what they should do we do it all the time right for these next three minutes you will sit at this red light we're talking about human life here Abraham is taught that nothing should be withheld from God but I believe there's a second part of this that the sacrifice of his child will accomplish nothing God must provide God will provide the child who will be sacrificed and he will not say it's going to be your child he'll say it's my child and when that child is sacrificed the infinite son of God who agrees to it and does it from a standpoint of being completely perfect and utterly righteous it never has to be repeated again because he stands to forgive the sins of all of all, all the past sinners and all the future sinners once for all sacrificed for our benefit what do we learn from this story how does this apply to us faith is more than just the jersey that we wear right you're not a Christian like someone is a Republican or a Democrat, right? The Republicans wear the red jerseys, right? And the Democrats wear the blue ones. And the guys who fought for the South wore gray. And the guys who fight for the North wear blue. And, you know, like, I'm a Christian. And so this is the jersey that I wear. And whenever anybody posts anything I disagree with on Facebook, I'm like, this is what Christians think. Blah, 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 blah. Now, that's not what it's like to be a Christian. More than the jersey we wear, to, to live by faith in Jesus Christ is revealed in Scripture and to obey God the Father, I gave it away, uh, the, to, to be a person of faith means to obey. It means to follow through on our faith. Think about it. I believe intellectually, right? I believe something in my heart and therefore I act. Okay, if I believe that if I do not want to continue to pin the scale, and I, when I say pin the scale, I don't mean actually pin the scale. I mean when the scale indicates a number, I'm like, ah, that high and no higher, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shed some of these pounds. If I believe that the way to lose the weight that I want to lose is to eat mostly vegetables, a little meat, a little, little bit of wheat, no sugar, no dairy, and then I say, but in my heart I delight in medium coffee with cream and sugar and two sour cream donuts consuming 900 calories in just about five minutes then what do I really believe right the value of losing weight goes away and the value of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of Dunkin Donuts that's what's more valuable that's what I believe right I believe that to eat is good 
If I believe that my family is important, but when I am home, I spend my time watching television on my phone, on some electronic device, or on Facebook, or on Pinterest, or checked out reading books, that's a kind of dangerous technology too, by the way, if we're talking about family engagement. You could be like, I don't do Facebook, right? But you could be, have your nose in a book and be completely disconnected from what's going on. Then, then the cultivation of your own mind or the pleasure of reading is superior to you than the pleasure of being engaged in your family. And so the question is, when God calls us to engage, when he calls us by faith, when he pulls us up short as, as someone shares a scripture with us or as we watch a, a, a spiritual video on Facebook or some other place or we hear a sermon or we go to Sunday school and somebody shares something or we're in small group and, and that, that, that feeling, you know, like when the, when the background is retracting behind you, like, doo, 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 you know, and you're, you're just like, this applies to me. The Lord is speaking to me saying, Keith, Keith, deal with this issue. What we believe has got everything to do with action, doesn't it? Right theology naturally leads to right living. It is no good to have right theology without right action. Even the demons believe, the Bible says, and they live in fear. They shudder at the presence of God or at the prospect of judgment. The heart tends to pull us away. We, we move our, our faith into our head and we say, if I believe the right things, if I fight for the right team, then God will be pleased with me. But what we really need to do is to fight back against the internal enemy of our heart that says no to God. I am God. I am king. I am to be worshipped. You will conform to my image. We need to honestly and truthfully assess what are those things that I am not willing to deal with that are, are right in the back that God has said, you should live this way. And I'm like, nah, I'll get around to that someday. And by someday, it's like, right, when we're, when we're finally going to get to that project that we're never really going to get to. As I was, I was teaching in Africa, I shared this at the Sunday school last week, I was just overwhelmed as I was teaching and preaching about my need. We all have this, but it's just hitting me. My own need to guard my heart. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from, from it flow the springs of life. We have a, a first and foremost duty as human beings created in the image of God to guard our heart and to worship God, to honor and love him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. And anything that enters in there that would, would remove that goal or would block it, we've got to kill it dead. Or it will kill us. We have a tendency as believers, I think, to focus on what's out of joint in others to ignore what we need to do most regarding our own sins and failings, and to intellectualize our faith rather than acting on it. How good it is to cultivate one or two good Christian friends who you can go to and say, this is what's going on in my heart. I know this evil is there and it's drawing me away. 
would you ask me, not judge me, not tell everybody about me, but would you walk with me as I attempt to deal with this? Tell me what's going on in your heart. Let us speak plainly. For Christians, the act of faith is the fruit of faith, not the root of it. What I mean by, by saying that is it's not, it's not that, that when, I, when I give or when I love or when I repent, those aren't, that's not what earns me salvation, right? Salvation is purchased for us on the cross by Christ and we receive it by his merit. It's given to us by God. Uh, Genesis 15, 6, right? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's the way our faith works. But if we believe what we say that we believe, what we believe we will believe, we believe, then we act on it. The act of faith is the fruit of faith, not the root of it. Abraham believed. He, he twisted himself into knots trying to figure out what the end of this, this procedure was going to be. You want me to sacrifice my son? How is this going to work? And Hebrews says that he believed. This is how he worked it out. He said, he said okay, what's going to happen is I'm, I'm going I'm to I'm gonna sacrifice him and then God is going to raise him from the dead and give him back to me. You could maybe add to that. This is sanctified imagination. I don't think the scripture teaches this, but it, you, you could maybe add, I don't know why he would do that. That doesn't seem to make sense. But okay. And so God calls us in the scriptures, in Christ, to do all kinds of things. We can say that we believe in the Bible and in Christ, but until we say, I'm going to realize that in my life by being obedient, not to earn salvation, but because of it, then we cannot say that we're walking by faith. God promises to act and to do things. And then we need to act. I just want to point this out. I spend about an hour teaching this in my, my class. I'm going to spend about a minute, maybe just a little bit more. And then I want to share uh, uh, maybe two and a half ideas as we close. Numbers 13.2, the uh, passage that we looked at last week, grasshoppers of your imagination. It's been fun. Nancy and I all week have been saying things like, this is a grasshoppers of our imagination um, uh, incident. And I actually threw it back at John. I said, don't put a grasshopper in my imagination. And he received it the way I intended it to make him smile. Um, but he knew what I was saying, which was cool. So now we have our own code language. So be sure to keep the, tend the grasshoppers, okay? Like, Identify them, rather. Don't, don't encourage them. Um, but use that phrase. It's cool. Anyway, send men, God says in Numbers 13, to spy out the land of Canaan, the land of Canaan, comma, which I am giving to the people of Israel. Go look at the land. I'm giving it to them, right? Joshua 1, 2. We're not going to get into what happens in between that. But, but God says this to Joshua. Moses, my servant, is dead. Therefore, now arise, Go over this Jordan, you and this people, into the land that I am giving to them. But there are fortresses and giants and scary people in there. We can't just go in there. Yes, we can. Why? Because God is giving it to us. Well, let's maybe wait for God to give it to us. No, 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 it doesn't work that way. In, in the book of Joshua, when they cross over the Jordan, you know what they, they have to do? They take their most valuable thing, 
the Ark of the Covenant. They get the priests all dressed up, the most valuable people from, from uh, the, the nation's perspective. And, and Joshua says, we're going to cross over on dry land, right? And the, and the water's flowing, and, and the priests are probably like, okay. And Joshua's like, okay, step in. And they put their feet in, and the water stops. They have to act, and then it happens. Just as I was with Moses, I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Joshua 1.6. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. We as a people of faith, this is important. You know, school is, is everybody's going to be, you know, back in church consistently as the school summer winds down you know the like the great scattering is going to end and and we're we're getting back to business we're going to be finishing up abraham we'll have a state of the church message and then we're going to go into a gospel and we're going to spend a long time with jesus i have no idea it's probably going to be mark or matthew it's not going to be luke because all my pastor friends are preaching through luke and i'm like eh, i'm not doing what you guys are doing we've done john already anyway that's the second child in me um it's so important that we understand this principle Yes, we wait on the Lord for things that we cannot answer ourselves, that we cannot handle ourselves, but we are active while we wait. And those things which God calls us to do and to step out by faith and to do, we do them because that's the right thing. We respond properly. I want to just say I am so proud of our church and the team that we sent overseas. A group of people who heard me say over and over in training, not exactly sure what's going to happen here or there, how you're going to just be ready to preach the gospel in whatever class you get put in. Have a presentation ready for big kids and one for little kids. And they'd be like, are we going to be teaching big kids or little kids? And I'm like, I don't know. you just got to be ready. Just be ready. And man, they represented us so well. So well. So well. I got off of the bus on campus and students kept on coming up to me and saying, is Tiffany from your church? Yeah, and they're like, we really like her. And I'm like, I know, that's why I sent her to you. That's why, this is, this is the big idea. I'm gonna bring Tiff over. They love her and she represented you so well. She's like, Pastor Keith, what do I do about this and about teaching and about, I gotta, I'm like, I can tell you what I'm, I do and you're gonna have to translate in your own class. And she did awesome. By faith, scared. Who do I meet when I get to the airport? Well, there'll be this guy named Garen, and he'll pick you up. Really? Yeah, I'll send you a picture of him. She has no idea. It's great. Jerry, coffee man. Basmai. You know what that means? When they found out that he works in the cooking trade and he was going to cook with them, they were laughing at him because that's woman's work. Basmai. That's what that means, woman. Um, they loved him. They loved that, that, that he took a risk and hung out with them and shared with him. The, the, the head of the ministry wants him to come back next year and teach culinary skills to all the students. And the students, they were calling him Basmai in jest by the time the, um, the, the, the trip was over. Uh, Mark and Alice, Mama, Papa, loving on those kids. Uh, that You just maybe saw the picture in the slideshow of the, the, the horde of children just surrounding Alice anywhere she went. You know, Mark just 
talking to everybody he could meet, sharing the gospel with them. I'm like, where's Mark? He's like, they're like, he's in that set of houses over there. Go get Mark, you know, and he's like still talking to people, just sharing the gospel. Danielle Smeltzer sharing the gospel, standing up in front of a whole classroom. I'm like, I've not heard this girl say 10 sentences in all the time that I know her. And she's telling all these kids, here's how you put together a bracelet. And this is the gospel and trust in Jesus. Sue Smeltzer, who sends me an email uh, before we go, a Charles Stanley devotional saying, this is often how I feel. And the email was just like the, the, the devotional said, no matter how unable you feel to do what you're being called to do, trust in the Lord by faith and, and, and he will see you through. And she, she's communicating to me, I don't really know why I'm going. We get to campus and you know what? Uh, a woman stands up, uh, Jolene Evans, and she says, she says, I'm hoping, not a big deal if nobody knows how to do it, we've, we've got 70 people coming. We need blankets and quilts made so that, so that the last couple of people will have some bedding because there's not going to be any bedding on campus once the students go home. I'm hoping somebody from your team, somebody can sew. The most important thing that needed to be done while we were there so that the campus would not be embarrassed in a week, that's what Sue was able to do. She's no, no clue. Why am I going? What, 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 you know, what am I going to do? What can I do? The only thing that needs to be done. Like, that really needs to be done. That's faith. God just showed us over and over and over. My man Perry, just working hard in the clinic. My son Jack, hanging out of the window, sharing the gospel with kids. God is calling us to be part of what he's doing. And it's not until by faith we step out and say, okay, I'm going to be obedient that the power is going to come, that the ability is going to come, that the greater set of response, we can sit around and wait for 20 years and say, God, give us a significant ministry. But when we step out in faith and say, I'm going to be obedient, I'm going to share the gospel, I'm going to start doing what I have been commanded by my king, that's when the opportunities are going to present themselves. God is calling us to be part of what he's doing. Abraham is the seed. This is the man who will be the grandfather, great-great-grandfather something to David and Jesus. You know what? Abraham prays. Abraham is, is believing, not my will, but thine be done. His great, 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 great something grandson will pray this exact same prayer in the garden and purchase our salvation for us by faith. God will create a nation through Abraham that will produce Messiah and bring him to the cross. Do you think he was thinking that, standing there with that knife? No, he was just obedient. Salvation comes by grace through faith to sinners. And no one has to suffer ever again to obtain it. But now Jesus is building his church. He is the seed and the foundation stone. The church is called to bring this message of Jesus to the world. Salvation can be had at the price of Jesus' blood. But for you, it comes free by grace through faith. Is there suffering required to advance that message? Yes. Will we be tested? Absolutely. Will it be difficult? 
It will. Will it be inconvenient? It might be. Will it be worth it? Yes. But the water doesn't stop at the Jordan until we step in. God doesn't call off the test until the knife is up. God doesn't send the Holy Spirit until the church is on its knees praying in the upper room. We've got to position ourselves to be obedient if we expect God to act and to follow through. Because the act of faith is the fruit of faith, not its root. And God is calling us to be obedient and to step out in faith. And our faith is going to be reflected in the way that we give, the way that we love, the way that we share the gospel, and the way that we live our daily lives. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be here and to share. I pray that that you would call us to active faith, that by your grace, we would take steps of faith, that through the empowerment of your Holy Spirit, we would be emboldened to trust you. But Father, I pray that you would push us off the ledge of our fear. Call us to jump. And I pray, trusting you, we would take steps of faith, trusting that, that you will be there to provide power when it comes time to accomplish our mission. We thank you that you showed us this in Abraham, the the first man of faith. We pray that you'd help us to write this lesson on our hearts. In Jesus' name.